All right, so let's talk about research. Um, I think we've been having these conversations um, kind of throughout the week about what will spark something in the work. And this talk is as much about that as it is about how to utilize um, different types of research, particularly in poems, um, because I don't know if y'all know this, but poets get a bad rap. Like people have told me on a number of occasions, well, poems are easy because you just write what you feel. <laughs> and that's hateful. And that is some crap. Um, and so I, I like to look at different examples, some of the uh, examples that I sent you. I hope you got a chance to look over and we'll touch, touch base on some of those. Um, and then I'll give you just kind of resources, as many as I possibly can. I actually added in a kind of a reference list um, of some books that I was thinking through uh, the other night. Um, so that you could have some stuff to go back to as well. If you're interested in poets in particular who are doing this kind of work, um, work that is creative but is really centered in hardcore research. Hey, Devin. And so um, Mining the Spark, just a little background for you. Uh, yes, perfect. Um, I think that researching history, at least for me, it helps broaden my scope as a writer, and I think it can do the same for you. So um, is anyone familiar with Greg Orr's essay on the four temperaments in poetry? Um, it was in American Poetry Review some years ago. Oh, Doug, see, he's a smart person. Um, and so he kind of laid this out really well. If you're thinking about craft essays for your students, this might be a good one. Um, so he talks about the fact that uh, poetry has uh, four elements that are primary, story, structure, music, and imagination. And I'd like to argue that research can help bolster that imagination in your poems, even though that might seem kind of strange. Um, but we'll talk through how that can help. It can also help you balance out the four. So history can be like formal verse in that it can be used as a restraint to help create helpful limits for you because it narrows your focus and leads to specificity in your work. Does that make sense? All right. So. Research is a way to write your obsessions. You guys know how I feel about this. Um, the things that you are most taken with, um, sometimes uh, because it can be overwhelming your love of these things, we tend to stay away from them, but I have the opposite idea. So for me, desire is obsession. The things we keep going back to that dig in us, Poetry is about mining or extracting the things that come back to us, re-examining love and shadows. Right? I'm obsessed with the ugliness of desire to the point of suffering. When writing, I've found it best to fight obsession by trying to climb into it instead of running away from it. I write a poem in hopes of getting inside the obsession until I am freed to move on to other fixations. There's always something else to come. A deep dive into the thing can help you unshackle yourself from the hold of it. So right now, uh, I'm fixating, fixated on kind of a strange occurrence that happened 40 years before I was born. And if you read the essay, you kind of got some of the background on what um, my most recent project is about. But we'll talk through some of that, too. Um, and so really researching that convergence and the things that might illuminate the world as it was during that convergence, that's kind of the heart of the obsession for me right now. So I'm a writer whose ideas come like lightning in a flash and can fizzle out just as quickly. So craft is what helps me salvage the spark that led me to the page in the first, page, in the first place. And research helps grow that spark up and give it a face. 
Um, so, uh, by the way, that image that you see, uh, you can't read that because it's really tiny. But that's Petersburg, Virginia, around 1940. And so um, this strange occurrence that happened uh, is that uh, kind of uh, my progenitors, grandmothers on both sides of my family kind of intersect in 1940 in Petersburg, Virginia, which is maybe 45 minutes from where I live. But I had never been there, and I didn't know that they were there. And one gives an interview for the WPA slave narratives, um, and the other is sent to uh, the Central Hospital for the Colored Insane. It's the only colored uh, mental institution in the nation at the time, um, and she's sent there for postpartum depression, but they don't know what it is. So they just say, oh, you got water on the brain, you're crazy. Um, but they are within a mile of each other in the same place at the same time. So my mother's mother and my father's grandmother's grandmother kind of like right in the same spot on earth, which makes me crazy because how is that possible, right? Um, and so that is the obsession that I'm working through now and the research is helping to guide me through that. So uh, research poems are also poems of witness. Um, what do I mean by that? What is a poem of witness, by the way? I am not gonna stand up here and talk all day. Y'all know that's not how I get down. So we're gonna, we're gonna do this back and forth thing. And I'm gonna refer to kind of, um, we can look at the Martina Spada poem, Alabanza, first. But anybody wanna just weigh in on that? Like, what do you even think when you hear that term, poem of witness? Hey, Simeon. So, so I feel like, so I feel like when you really commit yourself to something and you research it, mm -hmm. that is the form of worship. Oh. Um, so, 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 so you're go, so you're going into a thing, and you <laughs> say my, and you say my love of this thing requires me to know the various sides of it, and I feel like, and I feel like in that way you can apply witness two different ways. You're there to love, but you're also there, you know, as a witness in the religious sense. Jesse, please write down his A. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I, I was thinking. Very surface, but. Absolutely. Like if we're talking about desire and obsession and crawling into the thing, it is an act of worship, right? But also you mentioned on the back end kind of an act of seeing. Um, I think I saw Vince and then I'm coming around. Lynn? So um, I teach in the prison system. Mm -hmm. And one thing I tell my prison oh, students Misha. all the time is I witness you or I witness what you're doing or whatever. Mm. So like for me, poems of witness or the act of witnessing something is just shedding light that somebody else um, is, is giving focus, attention, um, lifting that situation up and saying, like, I'm, I'm a part of that with you as mm -hmm. well. Yes. Um, so that's sort of how I think of, like, a poetry of witness. Absolutely. What a great example, too. Lynn and then Andrew. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm coming back to you. So one of the really important things for me about witness is um, from the Holocaust, the survivors all thought of themselves as witnesses. Mm that they survived in order to be able to mm. talk about what had happened, that their, of course. for many of them, their mission was to have been a witness to that history. Yes. Because nobody else was around to be able to actually say what happened in the camps. What? And so they were the witnesses to that history. And for me today, I feel it's really important um, I can't remember. I, one of the books that I read uh, last semester was all about how, I think it was Hempel actually, mm -hmm. who talks about being a memoirist is really important because you are a witness to your time. Hmm. You are a witness to history. We're going we're gonna to piggyback on this, but I mean the responsibility that comes with living through history. 
Um, we should think about that as writers for sure. We help illumine what is unseen or underseen, right? And so when back you're to not that. Famous or something. You yeah. Are the witness to the day-to-day -day life. Absolutely. That's important too. The dailiness of the thing. Did I say Andrew Mark? Or did I say Andrew? Mm -hmm. So I feel that the act of in, interrogating these stories and then pulling them into consciousness is effectively like enshrining these fleeting moments in a way that becomes lasting and thus gives validation to like all of these these lives that could be seen almost as white noise if there is hmm. attention drawn to them. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, experience does blend and people love to lie about it, don't they? <laughs> over time. You read a history book lately? I don't know. So. I'm thinking about Ava and Jordan's Magnolia. Hey, we just talked about that this morning. Okay. It really is. But like the, what happened? The, oh. Yeah, the writer's sort of act of biography or re-inhabiting um, a voice or a story that didn't have a chance. If it doesn't come up, don't sweat it. Have its own voice or story as in Magnolia, or even the moments in that collection where he inhabits I don't know where he decided to go away. So we're going to talk about Van. One of his poems um, from Magnolia, from, is a dictionary poem yeah. from that book yeah. um, that we're going to use. Oh, thanks, sir, for helping me. So, I mean, I think, yes, like really specific entities, people from history, illuminating their voices beyond what illumination we already have, because we have plenty about prior, right? Exactly. Um, so filling in the minutia of the thing, we're going to so talk about that too. So, yes, yes, absolutely. And centering her in time, right? Because if you put her against something we really know well from that time, it helps center her for us, right? Yeah. That's good stuff. Um, two more. Uh, hey, Julia. I've always been interested in the, the uses. You talk about bearing witness. Mm -hmm. Like how women bear children. Um, my short answer is yes, and we'll talk through why, um, especially through some of these examples. Um, but also, um, burdens are lifted, and I think witnessing in that way can be a part of that. So we'll talk through some of that too. Smart stuff. Uh, and, and I'm thinking about shining the light into the corners of things. So elevating yes. Who, elevating what on the surface looks like the mundane. Yes. The Absolutely. Alabanza. <laughs> so let's talk about this Martina Spada poem. Uh, my workshop knows uh, my tagline is, what's the poem about? Why is it working? Um, I hope some of you knew this poem before I threw it in here, but probably didn't think of it, uh, particularly as it pertains to research. Um, so um, what's the poem about? Why is it working? Can somebody give me a real quick? And if not, we can start reading a little bit of it. We won't have time to read everything. So um, Alabanza and Praise of Local 100. Martina Spada. We're just going to read maybe the first stanza. 
For the 43 members of hotel employees and restaurant employees, Local 100, working at the Windows on the World restaurant, who lost their lives in the attack on the World Trade Center. Who feels uh, comfortable with um, some Spanish words and will read that first stanza for me? Doug, jump in. Alabanza, praise the cook with a shaven head and a tattoo on her shoulder that said, Oye, a blue-eyed Puerto Rican with people from Ferraro to harbor of pirates centuries ago. Praise the lighthouse in Ferraro. Candle glimmering white to worship the dark saint of the sea. Alabanza, praise the cook's yellow pirate's cap worn in the name of Roberto Clemente his plane that flamed into the ocean loaded with cans from Nicaragua for all the mouths chewing the ashes of earthquakes. Alabanza, praise the kitchen radio, dial clicked even before the dial on the oven so that music and Spanish rose before bread. Praise the bread, Alabanza. You would get the music stanza done. So um, this poem is, uh, you know, there were many poems written after September 11th. I haven't seen very many like this one. Um, how and why do you think it's a research poem? If you're, if you're getting clued in, just look at that epigraph. What do you see about that? And has anyone, does anyone know anything about this particular story or these particular people uh, in September 11th? D Delaney? I don't, but mm -hmm. I, I, I remember the like incessant information that came afterwards. We all did. Yes. Right? And so I imagine, I imagine uh, Martina Espada yep. being like one of us having this flood of information coming over of yep. him. And he hears about this group of 43 people. That is exactly what happened. So um, Martine, and a little bit of background on Martina Spada for real. If you don't know him, get to know him. It's, uh, it's worth your time, baby. So um, uh, Martine has a vested interest and a background in history. He's a historian. He went to law school. He writes um, quite a bit about, um, you know, working class folks and immigrants. Um, you know, so all of these things are kind of right up his alley. But what he talks about in this particular poem is that through the flood and onslaught of information that he got living through that historical moment of 9-11, there was one little snippet on the news that said, oh, and 43 workers lost their lives at the restaurant. So there is a restaurant um, at the top of the World Trade Center that some of you probably went to because it was a huge tourist attraction, or you probably know somebody who went, but it was called Windows on the World. And what they did at the very top um, of the Trade Center was they would hire folks from all over and they would sometimes wear, you know, garb from Nicaragua or from Ecuador or whatever, um, you know, Haiti, and they would have, you know, music and dishes that were from all over the world. And of course, this group of folks, largely immigrants, uh, largely people who were working class citizens at the top of the World Trade Center, which is kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Um, Everyone who was in the restaurant who showed up for work on time that day lost their lives, of course, because it's the top of the building. And so what Martine does um, in researching the event is, well, you tell me what happens in the poem. First, there's this repetition of alabanza, which means praise, by the way. Um, so this poem is different from most September 11th poems because um, while there's lament built into the event, uh, there's not a whole lot of lament built into the poem. What the poem is about um, is kind of reclaiming those lost stories, right? And so um, I think it's always an interesting thing to start with because for a while I would imagine that one 
spark of information became an obsession for Espada. And what he ended up having to do is create these lies. Now, there's other places where there could have really been research. We hear some of that centering going on where he talks about um, the yellow pirate's cap worn in the name of Roberto Clemente. We don't know if that's an actual true fact or something that he found after trying to find out about the people in the restaurant because he did do some actual homework to try to find out things about the, their lives. But that was a way to center the things that they loved, right? Um, the poem goes throughout talking about love in um, a way that I hadn't seen it done. Hey, don't keep acting crazy. Okay. Act right. All right. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. All right. So talking about love in that way, but that's a really tiny example of taking kind of uh, the, the furthest zoom in into the minutia of a thing as you can. So when we think about 9-11, all that information that we got is kind of the wide angle. But you can use research to help zoom in on something that might have been forgotten from the moment, right? And there's all this other political stuff that happens to illuminating immigrants, you know, in the midst of this, you know, uh, really high stress event so there's all that stuff too but all we get here is kind of a brief epigraph but in some poems we get the exact opposite we get the use of language from the actual documents so let's talk for a second about what qualifies as research what do you think what kinds of things do you think qualify as research in poems or otherwise you can say it anything say it Oh, you're just cheating, books? No, I'm just Okay. Oh, did it act crazy? Okay, go. Anything. I mean, like, anything can be research. Like, it could be a Freaking letter, it. it could be a song, it could be a, a piece of gum that you haven't tasted in 20 years, but you taste it again for the first time. Oh, that's good. That's interesting. Yes, absolutely. Taste can be uh, research. But I, I'm thinking very, somebody else had their hand up. Somebody else had their hand up. Did we already say it? Hey, Vicky. Hi. Uh, so um, you've got the word primary there, but the letters, the person themselves, things the person themselves uh, left behind, either letters or um, diaries or journals mm -hmm. or paper accounts about them, mm -hmm. um, uh, objects they own, pictures. Ah, pictures that's important. Objects. That comes back a lot. We talked about, you know, family photographs as a kind of an object of research in one of the poems yesterday from Cynthia. Hey, like say. different things and receive information differently so mm -hmm. of course you know Delaney's gonna taste something different when she tastes like I don't know like uh sauerkrauts <laughs> yeah. No, yeah exactly you're gonna react differently to certain things so it's essentially like our bodies like you know our receptors are gonna like create its own kind of research mm -hmm. that way like when I'm reading something I'm not gonna read the word right so I'm gonna make something fun out of a word I can't pronounce right you know what I'm saying so that creates a different tangent in itself that's interesting you're playing with the, the language of a word that's like scientific or something like, I can't read science words absolutely I'm like, I'm like I reckon that it even simple words sometimes change shape in our minds. That Nathan McLean poem that I sent you as an example of research, really it just came from the line of a newspaper. So the line from the newspaper was something like fire, you know, destroys. destroys right. But he read it as what destroys father, father destroys beloved Chicago bakery. 
and that messed him up, right? And so he wrote into that obsession. And so he turns the father into the destroyer of the cannoli and like the, what happens in the bakery. But it's kind of fascinating, right? Because he's talking through his experience with his father, but it starts with that spark. Um, so those are very small examples, taking a spark and building on them. But what about found poetry in research? Um, there was a book that won the National Poetry Series. Uh, it didn't win the National Poetry Series. It won, the, it won the book award, the National Book Award, a few years ago. Um, Robin Cost Lewis book, Voyage of the Sable Venus. I don't know if anybody knows this book. Yeah. I don't know why it doesn't it just, like me. It just has to duplicate each time. Oh, like be nice. So the book is about, um, and this is uh, on your, uh, that little kind of works cited extensive books page I gave you, if you want to go back to it. But uh, the book is about the black woman's body in art, kind of from the beginning of time, like from when we started counting. And unlike Martina Spada, who takes one little kind of newspaper headline and then creates these lives, what she does is she takes actual historical research. So she works with librarians uh, for almost 10 years, um, finding the taglines for every artifact kind of known in the modern world um, and some beyond it um, that has something to do with a black woman as she is figured in art. And then the middle of the book is this huge section, like, I mean, at least 30 pages of all of those tags strung together, right? And it creates a very interesting uh, reading of the black woman through time, of art and commodity, of all of these things, right? But that is a really extreme version of kind of how you can utilize found poems from research. And I just wanted to show you this really quickly. If you go to Lit Hub and, and Google her, you can see this. But you know, well, Martine's example, he didn't have to set any of that up for us. Uh, all we got was that little two-line epigraph. What she does at the beginning of this text is she writes a prologue that kind of explains what's about to happen. And that prologue becomes kind of a, an expository essay at the beginning that sets us up for what we're about to see. But so you can see, I just wanted you to see how far back in the research she goes. So she has a narrative poem that's comprised solely and entirely of the titles, catalog entries, or exhibit descriptions of Western art objects in which a black female figure is present dating from 38,000 BCE to the present, right? And then she sets up rules for herself. This is really interesting. She gives herself formal constraints. Um, and I don't know if it would have, if um, I would have been as interested in the construction of the poem if we didn't get this as part of the book as well. So she doesn't change any titles, they're not broken. The art includes all kinds of art, but also other material and visual objects, combs, spoons, buckles, pans, knives, table legs. So we get these women depicted as things that uh, are being put upon and as objects of beauty and as objects of ugliness or just objects of use, right? And so really quickly, I just want to scroll down so you can kind of see a little bit of this stuff. So what happens is she'll just give you a catalog, ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And this is how all of the women are depicted statuette of a black slave girl, right half of body and head missing. 
head of a young black woman fragment from a statuette of a black dancing girl, reserve head of an African princess statuette of a concubine, full length figure of a standing black woman wearing earrings, statuette once supported and ingenue. I mean, so like it goes on and on and on. And what happens is this mounting, <laughs> literally, um, body of information that by the end of the poem, you feel like one, I've kind of become an expert on art. Um, but also you start to see how the body has been manipulated in history and time. If that's not poetry or witness, I don't know what is. So I wouldn't expect any of us, maybe, maybe in time, to do you know, this 10-year kind of project that starts here and ends up being you know, um, the, the body of a text. But how can we use found poetry or found research and create narrative out of it? Let's talk about that. So let's look at some examples. I'm so sorry that I keep confusing it. So here's a few of the things that I want you to think about. Um, I kind of framed this for myself um, just so I could think about the different ways that we utilize research um, and the different types of research. So here are my five or six kind of names for them. So form, this is how we can be inspired by found vessels that lend themselves to use. Form, the example uh, that we just saw from Robert Cost Lewis, she would fall into that line. Facts, events in history, Vietnam War, Jim Crow laws, empires, battles, films, etc. 9-11, Martine falls into that, right? Flesh, remarkable people, illumined or given voice. Kind of that example from Magnolia from A. Van Jordan kind of falls into that category. Fancy, punctums. Anyone know that term from photography, do you? Please, illuminate that, a punctum. It's what hurts. It's... <laughs> 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 it's it's what hurts, <laughs> but in photography, um, Roland Barthes, if you <laughs> know any of, that, any of that text, he talks about the punctum in a photograph being the thing that draws your eye. Um, uh, it probably is not the focus of the photograph in an artistic photograph. It is sometimes the composition, something on the outside. Uh, there is um, a Natasha Trethewey poem that's called Gesture of a Woman in Process. Um, and she is writing about a photograph of women that are doing laundry, but one woman's hands are moving so fast that it's just a swirl. And so for her, that's the punctum, that this woman becomes a kind of a machine. Like, and so a punctum in photography, of course, but in whatever you love, so whatever the spark might be. And then convergence. Odd face you were forced to follow or find yourself squarely in the middle of by happenstance, birth, or both. And that's where I stand in the middle of this project. So um, let's talk a little bit about how that research plays out for me. Um, so this project um, is interesting enough, you know, that it's about people in my lives. And I can talk to some people who knew those people. Um, but what is more interesting to me as a poet is trying to figure out how and why they were who they were in the time that they lived. So some of the things that I started doing was trying to figure out what the landscape looked like in 1940, what they would have been seeing, hearing, reading, and then beyond that, because the other thing about their convergence is one woman is at the end of her life. She was born in 1860 as a slave because she was interviewed for 
the slave narrative. And the other is only 19, which she gets sent to the mental hospital. So I, I kind of want to trace them from before that time. So really that means that I have to start kind of 1830s, like, <laughs> you know, before slavery, before one came into being and go all the way through the end of the other's life. And so something that was beneficial for me was looking at some of the forms that existed in that time. So you saw the poem uh, Lost Friends um, of Mine. So this is, a, this is a something that I didn't know existed, but what I found in some of my research trying to um, find out different minutia about black life was that after the Civil War, um, of course there were uh, black newspapers that popped up all over the place, um, but one column that they started running uh, is called Lost Friends. And so you can see, these are actual examples from the Lost Friends column here. And so what they found out there was a need to do was most people were connected to a church home. Um, and so they would go to the pastor and say, hey, my name was Mary. And, you know, people knew me as Mary Clark. I've taken a different surname now, but I had three sisters. I want to know if you can help me find them. Can you help me write a letter and see if I can send it out to some other pastors? And so it started happening so frequently because people were separated after the war um, that they started running these columns that are basically just people looking for anybody else who might know that they are important in this life, right? So there are people, I wish to inquire for a friend of mine named Matthias Ward. He's known by either of those names, Matt Ward or Matthias. Address me at Sulphur Springs, right? Then there are people who get, you know, more and more deliberate. You know, I left my family. Here's my three aunts. She would have known I was here. I got moved to this land. So that column alone existing on the earth um, was fascinating to me. And so I decided to use that as the impetus for a poem. But the research of this and the found uh, part of this is the fact that I, the poem itself, as it looks in my book or as it will look in my book, will look just like a newspaper column. Um, and it might kind of open the thing. We don't know um, just yet. But um, I decided to write my own Lost Friends column. But I was writing it from right now, imagining that I was writing to anyone who could help me find my grandmothers, right? And so it's written in the same style and voice. That's important because sometimes you want to utilize the framework to create your voice or to create the speaker's voice, right? And so I don't have to read the whole thing because you guys have seen it, but really, I wish to inquire, dear editor, I wish to inquire for the women in me in the interest of my mother, father, aunts, uncles, and a great many cousins. I want to find my people. Um, and so part of that just opens up what I'm hoping to do in the book, but also it harkens back to the history of all of these folks who may or may not have found anyone to ever know them, you know, at a certain time. And so I think not only doing research, you know, from uh, books and looking for facts, but also looking at form might be an interesting way for you to start your work. Anybody know of any other poets who are doing this kind of thing, reclaiming vehicles, using form in an, in an interesting way, found poems in an interesting way? Van Jordan does it in Magnolia because he uses kind of those dictionary entries, and that was another example that I gave you. Be safe, what were you gonna say? I can't remember her name. I know her last name is Trask. 
think I talked no, no, to Cynthia about it, mm-hmm. about her, and she uses like this, she tra- she said she has to translate um, and use, because you know, she's on an island incorporating her indigenous self into this landscape and it being colonized and then trying to translate that into um, what people don't know mm. about Hawaii. So yeah, so she's, she's it's fascinating. kind of like doing both kind of like absolutely absolutely so i love the the <laughs> the fact that she's you know creating two vehicles yeah. for herself right mm-hmm. she's she's creating the um the information and the translation as she wants it to yeah. be told that's fantastic work oh and i'll come to you nathan oh yes jeez completely forgot about that Yeah. Fascinating story. Right, and he was like, "Now give me my money." Yeah. Right. I cannot believe that that's not here, but that's a really important text. Yes, I just put that on someone's reading list. So yes, sleeping with the dictionary is another really interesting way. Don't forget that dictionaries are another kind of, you know, secondary, tertiary research. So use those as well. I think Nathan had his hand up and then I'm going to come around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unbelievable, dramatic, and verbal irony. The, the ship's names themselves. Mercy. Yeah. Um, and uh, also, another early kind of postmodern poet, James Dickey's Falling. Oh. Oh, God. I completely a, forgot about this. A, a newspaper article of a woman that got sucked out of an airplane. Yeah. And actually appropriates um, uh, details from the article itself and then just takes them completely into his own fictive, weird, imaginative yeah. place, you know, in his own kind of, in some ways, misogynistic, erotic place, but yeah. he began with this, um, this original material. Yeah, which is crazy. If you go back and look at that, if you can. Um, Doug, yeah, and then. Bill Davis has this amazing book called The Walled Wife. Okay. And it's based, it's, it's such a strange layering of research mm-hmm. and imagination. So it is a series of poems about this uh, folk tale from Central Europe about building a, a keep to protect these three kingdoms and they have to bury a woman alive inside the foundations. And okay. uh, in some of the stories, there's a little hole because she's nursing a baby so she can nurse the baby through the wall. What? Um, but it's also about her reading this book called The Walled Wife, A Case Study, which is like a, a pro- the proceeds of a of a conference about this mythic this story, and then she loses the book in the middle of the book, and so it's her what? poems that reimagine the the essays from this conference about the story of this 15th century. It's just layer upon layer. It's so turned inside out, and and it's even weird in the table of contents. Table of contents starts at page 38 and then goes backwards. Mm. And then you turn the page and notes are on one, one side and another side of these forward moving dates. And then at the end, it's 
the last section is called All of the Interesting Stuff is in the Footnotes, and it's the last quarter. Which would make me super excited. It's such, it's such an amazing and interesting book. So basically, that just proves that some people are like way too smart for their own good. <laughs> because I mean, how do you take a spark and like take it that far? Like you can really, the obsession can become the rabbit hole, but it's amazing. I mean, some of the things that folks are doing with these texts. So I mean, find what you can. Let's, let's just get two more. Amber, and then I, I think I saw Andrew. Go ahead, Amber. And then we'll keep talking. Mark Nowak has a book called Hmm. Mm -hmm. work officials and he tells the entire narrative wow. from beginning to end and juxtaposes that with um, news reports oh that's interesting province in China oh. and how that different that's very different from the mind collapses here that we have um, it's really it's a really interesting read I actually um, was part of the original stage production of that oh so I was one of the get fancy girl <laughs> Get fancy. That that's fascinating to me because what you're doing is you're kind of creating a voice, a narrative line for just the story as it is, like just this is what happened, and then building in all this other material that makes you rethink what happened and why and how. Um, so I love when you can create layering. We'll come back to that too. Last last thing, Andrew, before we jump into something. Mm-hmm. Called Voyager. Mm-hmm. And it is um, three erasures of the same text. The autobiography of this uh, German man who was a former minister at the UN who dedicated the space shuttle Voyager, but it came out later that he was heavily involved in the Nazi Party, which destroyed his career at the UN. So oh. the first one, the first erasure, is about the the speaker, the poet's um, experience with the space shuttle Voyager when he was a boy, and then it goes through various layers examining what's unsaid in the this autobiography that was erased more so than what's in it um crazy fascinating what that what all of this tells me is one history is rich and ripe for the taking but also history we live through is something that we should think about as well and we're going to get to that like in a second i just wanted to talk through some of these points so you could actually see how maybe some of this stuff manifests in a poem um, because sometimes I'm using research and then creating images or creating um, information that helps shift or create a, a narrative voice in the text for myself. Um, and so this is like a little, I know those things are really small. I gave you this handout just so you could jot notes as we go, but if you have any real interest in like seeing any of this stuff, I'll send you the PowerPoint as well. Um, and so you guys looked at this poem, uh, Commemorative Headdress, for her journey beyond heaven. And so in that essay, I talk about kind of how I came to this poem and how it's just a, a mixture of a, many different things. Um, but I wanted to kind of highlight some of the places that um, were outside of my knowledge. I had no idea. This started with the spark. Um, I read a line somewhere that said, um, and isn't it fascinating that uh, slave women would braid escape maps into their hair? And I was like, excuse me, <laughs> what hair and we're talking about, you know, so um, <laughs> for real. And so that to me was fascinating, but also seemed so fantastic that I was like, I got to find something that really shows me in history that that was the truth. I mean, you know, black people are amazing. We're magic, all that good stuff. But I just wanted to make sure. 
um, <laughs> that there was actually something there that I could build on. And so um, what happened is I found all of these kind of resources that actually talked about, you know, the roots of black hair in America and beyond. And also this really fascinating Bancos Beojo, who I didn't know anything about. But um, actually, that was kind of one of his war tactics. Um, he's uh, from Colombia. And so in Colombia, during the slave route, he had all of these women as part of his kind of underground railroad network, even though their network was called something different. And that was one of his tactics. He would have the women braid their routes in their hair. And that's how they would pass them on. And they would know where they would go. And they would you know, be able to read the network themselves, because it was always with them. Um, and so I thought, oh, snap. Um, and I needed to start my narrative for these women um, in what for me was a really difficult place because I had no idea what I could illumine that, was, that had not been said about slavery, um, even though I, I think there are plenty of things. But also, um, like I told you, I have this investment in illuminating um, praise. And so I wanted to find what would be a spark or a light in that dark space. And so I started to write this woman who is escaping in 1830, Virginia. Um, another thing that I found that I just never thought about was that um, so many of runaway slaves in America lived in the dismal swamp, like they ran away to the swamp, and there were whole maroon communities in the swamp. Yeah. Everybody's shaking their heads, but I swear, no, no, yeah, yeah. I had never heard any of that. So I was like, oh. That's crazy. I never thought about that being a possibility. And so she's running into the swamp. And so here's just a few of the things that I can tell you from the poem um, that I didn't know. And so I'm creating this life for her um, and these women who are with her, Lily and Eve and Mary, who are helping to braid her hair. But the first thing is it says, all huddled in our dirt shed waiting to be discovered. The night cut from both ends gave us little time for breathing, less for tracing the route in my hair. They use wool card, water, and seed oil to fashion a plait. So one thing I found in the research was, what the heck, it's hard enough to find hair products now. How could they even do this? Really and truly, right? Like I was like, look, I need to know on a basic level, girl. You know what I mean? How was that even a possibility? Because, you know, um, that, that would seem amazing to me. And so I found this really brilliant text um, that talked about uh, a desolate place for a defiant people, which is about runaway slaves, but the geography of slavery in Virginia um, and rebels on the plantation, which is another text that talked about just the daily living. They did all this archival and archaeological research. They undercover, you know, they went back to plantations and found out, you know, listen, people who still own this, can we do a dig here and find out what daily life was like? So parts of the things that they found were people would carve combs out of bone and people would um, use seed oil and a wool card. I don't know if you guys have ever seen what a wool card looks like. Maybe you're agricultural, but I hadn't seen one. You use it for like sheep, but it's kind of, it looks kind of like a brush, but it's got all these tiny bristles and you kind of like brush through the wool, but they would use that to kind of brush through the hair. And so some of the details of the poem come from the research, even though when this poem is put into a text, um, this book will actually have a reference page. But I don't have to put any of that at the top. You see, there's no epigraph, there's nothing there. So you can kind of use this to generate images, but then notate that in the way that you wish, right? Um, so 
we can talk through some of those, but right now I want you guys to get into your own stuff. So pull out that handout, the very last page. Also, I've been taking all these workshops on um, metacognition, so that's why this is so colorful. <laughs> I was like, those are important things to know. You will not forget what this looks like. So um, it's, it's double-sided, so you see the colorful side and then side on the back. So I want us to take like 10, 15 minutes and start working through some of this stuff. So um, really quickly, so let's kind of do this together and try to write the first thing that comes to your mind. So we're going to do these in quadrants. So um, the very first quadrant um, is about historical events that you remember living through or witnessing. Write that down very quickly. Give yourself like, you know, 10 seconds to write it down. Next quadrant. I don't want us to think about these things too much. The gray quadrant. List three historical events, people that have always fascinated you. And here's where you let your obsessions kick in. Anybody you want, anything you want, any time you want, they've just fascinated you. Third quadrant and green. Google your hometown or somewhere very nearby, because I know some hometowns are so small you can't even Google them. Wikipedia, this is the one time that I think Wikipedia is actually helpful, because I find something on the Wikipedia entry of my hometown, which is Glendale, Arizona, actually, um, that uh, what I think of as my hometown. For me, it's the place where I grew up most. Um, so what I think of as my hometown. The Wikipedia page really actually helped me with this. And write one fact you never knew. Let's do this activity on the back and then we're going to wrap because we only have like 10, 15 minutes left. Um, and so here's what I want you to do. So all of this, we're doing it for a reason, but I like to shake up the subconscious. My uh, group knows this. So this sheet starts with a quote from Adrian Rich about revisioning, looking back, seeing with fresh eyes from a new critical direction. And that's what I think we're trying to do. But also I think we can use these kinds of um, cool little snippets in creation and revision. So there's a Baldwin excerpt, um, it says below, but on the back of this chart. They plot where history and personal narrative meet. So I want us to read it really quickly. Can somebody read that aloud for me, that little paragraph? Jesse? On the 29th of July in 1943, my father died. On the same day, a few hours later, his last child was born. Over a month before this, while all our energies were concentrated in waiting for these events, there had been in Detroit one of the bloodiest race riots of the century. A few hours after my father's funeral, while he lay and stayed in the Undertaker's Chapel, a race riot broke out in Harlem. On the morning of the 3rd of August, we drove my father to the graveyard through a wilderness of smashed plate glass. Mm. It's Baldwin. I mean, come on. Do we expect anything less than perfection? So um, that's the opening of an essay. But I want you on those lines that are there to plot out. What happens that's historical? Like literally write it down. So race riots, Detroit. And then plot out the personal. And let's talk about where and how they intersect. Just take like two minutes. So um, what's effective about the way Baldwin uses research here? Other than the fact that he's just Baldwin and everything he does is perfect. What's effective about the way that he intersects the personal and the historical? Where things are happening, even if you don't know the specific date, you kind of have a 
Absolutely. And um, is one given precedent over the other, do you think, in that paragraph? No. It's kind of like a perfect balance, right? But it also, and he's Baldwin, so he goes on to illuminate this, but it also makes you think about what the challenges would be of dealing with that personal during that historical moment, right? Julia, what were you going to say? It's, it's not the same date in history in different years. It's a perfect intersection, so we get the that final line that they drove to the graveyard through the, the aftermath of the historical glass. right? Absolutely. So, I mean... <laughs> Suffice it to say, Baldwin has said, we live through history, history lives around us, but has said it much better and in a more interesting way, right? Um, and that's what I hope your pieces will do. So let's write something. So you just wrote down all kinds of little historical snippets that link to your personal life. And you talked through some of the things you said, some of the things you heard, some of the ways you saw them, the ways that you were introduced to them. So I want you to use the ideas, the imagery, reference one of the things that you've mined here and write three lines of poetry or three lines of prose that intersect the historical and the personal, a la Baldwin. You can do it on the back of this. All of this is yours, so you can do it wherever you want. If you want to do it on a blank piece of paper, you can. But I want you to just three lines that intersect the personal and historical using something that you wrote on the, the front side of that sheet. And I say start in your memory, and we're going to get to this in a second, because I think sometimes the challenge is when you're doing research, uh, one of the things that people hear all the time is people get pissed. It's not your story, right? That's also a fear. So I feel like sometimes starting with what is yours is an easier way to enter and start thinking about it. And then you can take that, once you've cultivated some of those skills, you can take that into you know, finding things that are completely external from you, things that you did not live through, um, but you can approach them with empathy because you've already done some of that work. Right? Does that make sense? So real quick, as we're closing up, um, you read the Ocean Vong poem. He says something interesting here. And of course, the oral tradition doesn't offer a page. He's talking about the fact that that poem that I had you read, he wrote about uh, his grandmother uh, being in Saigon when it was liberated and they had to get people out. And as a code, they were playing Irving Berlin's White Christmas. You know, like that was the song. So he always thought that was so strange, but his grandmother would tell him, I was hearing White Christmas. I was hearing White Christmas. Right. And he thought, what a strange thing to be hearing such a soft kind of gorgeous song in the midst of all of this. And so he wrote this poem. But he said, of course, the oral tradition doesn't offer a page. In a way, I was collaborating with my grandmother beyond her life um, because he starts crafting this poem while she's alive. And she's giving him, you know, like family research, <laughs> mouth to mouth research. Um, and he continues crafting it after she's gone. Um, and so uh, it just makes me think about how research is important, but also how we can continue to link it to revision, how we can keep building on these things. Research helps us create imagery. It layers the meanings of things for us. Think about denotative and connotative meanings. It invigorates vague notions or fleshes out lore. Uh, he actually went to the research and found out if that were true. Like, did she remember it correctly? Um, my grandmother, who was in the mental institution, always told us, I was there for nine months. I was there for nine months. And I found her actual name in the ledger when she, they signed her in and when they signed her out. And she was there for three months. But I wonder if she conflates that with having the baby. You know what I mean? Lots of things. So sometimes that helps us flesh out what is just family lore. Um, growing ideas, turning a single poem into a series of poems or a book, as we've heard, right? A single short story into a novel. And this is important, helps us avoid historical erasure. 
This is Natasha Trethaway's term. I had you read her poem, Miscegenation, which is about her parents that uh, got married in 66 when it was illegal for a black uh, woman and a white man to be married. And she writes this puzzle that um, kind of traces who she is and how she came to be. Um, but also that full book, Native Guard, is about all kinds of historical research. So go back to that. But she talks a lot about historical erasure. And this goes back to us being witnesses of things that don't generally get attention <laughs> or um, are undermined for other reasons. And so I think it's important that um, these family stories that we have, um, these things that make us and make other people who they are, um, I think sometimes it's really important for us not to let them uh, fall into oblivion with the people that we lose, even if they are about the dailiness of our living, which I think it was something important that Lynn brought up. You know, for me, writing that letter poem that I told you about with my aunt and uncle last night, that's part of reclaiming, you know, black love for them, which is something that's being erased all the time. So I think it's important to do some of that work. Last little slide. What's the danger in some of this? So some people will say, oh, if you want to write something historical or you find something interesting, but you're not inside of it or you're not of the group that's inside of it, some people will say it's not your story. Start with what is yours. That's an easy way into things. But also empathy is key. Research helps you clarify that you are an ally and not a harbinger. If you are an American poet writing about happenings in the world, often you will be outside of your personal scope of vision first-hand knowledge or understanding. Research helps you position yourself as an ally, not a voyeur, right? If you're a white poet writing about oppression, often, uh, especially American poets, you'll be writing about oppression that isn't yours. But empathy is key because specificity helps you link suffering, relief, fear, the wider universe that you do know firsthand and avoid marginalization of people or places or things or ideas, all the nouns, right? by creating well-crafted, clear, and detailed work that helps craft your own empathy and that of the reader, right? So um, what to discard? This is another thing that people worry about all the time. Uh, remember, you're not a reporter. <laughs> so some of those things that, some of the mounting facts that start sounding uh, heavy, that start to weigh the narrative down, remember Baldwin's example of balance. Right. And even if you're not balancing your own story, you are balancing a persona's story. Right. So remember that idea of balance um, when you lose interest. If you're if you're bored, everybody else is bored. Right. So don't let the narrative get weighed down by trying to fill in as much as possible. Sometimes it's just an epigraph a la Martina Espada. Sometimes it's a poem in 34 voices like that Patricia Smith example that I gave you her writing about a voice for each of those um, residents in Katrina who was lost in that um, nursing home. And so how to document it, uh, any way you want it, but I wanna give a little disclaimer here. Um, I don't want you to feel like you have to have a full reference list for everything that happens, particularly in poetry, but you are not limited to not having that. Some poets feel like we can't have a full, like actual references, footnotes. I've seen it done in every single way. And I tell you, you give me a good book of poems with notes, and I'm all about it, right? Um, so find any way that you want to document that, even if you're using epigraphs or using really small um, notes at the end of a poem, tags at the beginning, section headings. Um, so there is the limit is your imagination. So you document that any way you want. 
So here's just kind of the last thing that I wanted to say. So researching a subject to gain some level of expertise adds authority and most often another level of depth to your writing. The goal here is to do and learn something new and to create a better, more reflective, well-crafted product. Um, <laughs> because I've been turning to prayer more than the news, I guess uh, it ruminates on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That scripture says, um, nothing is taking you except that is common, except what is common to men. And that word common gets me every time, kind of saves me. Because I think it's mercy to know that though the weight of the world is terrible, and sometimes stifling, and sometimes heavier than any brother, some of us are still surviving. So I think work that's centered in care, in empathy, in witnessing, in love, is the open plea, it's a begging, it's obsession, it's desire, it's a calling out to someone or something distant by bringing them close at the same time. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Woo!